Today's scripture comes from Hebrews 2, 5 to 18. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell you, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make appropriation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted." Let's go to the Lord and pray to begin with this morning. Father, we really need to see Jesus more clearly in our lives. And I pray that as we work our way through this wonderful but somewhat complex passage, I pray that you would just open our hearts and our minds to Jesus' identity, that we would know who he is more clearly, and we would see how that connects to our lives very practically. Uh, Lord, we have different needs in the room this morning. I know I have needs in my life, and I'm sure each person um, has very specific needs. And I pray that with your word this morning that you would just wash our feet. Lord, that you would uh, meet, meet those needs, minister to us, speak to us very specifically with where we're living at present. And I just pray for clarity and help, um, that you would fill me with your spirit, that uh, you would give all of us the ability to just kind of walk our way through your word in a way that will clarify things for us. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Some of you may be familiar with the name Chuck Colson. Uh, Colson was a political operative for Richard Nixon, and that uh, corrupt kind of administration of a U.S. president that ended uh, not well in his time in the office. Uh, but Colson became a devout believer. He kind of went through Watergate and all the difficulties that were surrounding that, but he had a, a group of close friends who were devout Christians. And somewhere in that time period, Colson came to a place where he committed his life 
to Christ and then went into prison because of uh, the things that were uncovered with Watergate and that kind of uh, moment. Uh, after he got out of prison, he was on a public broadcasting television special, and the person who was interviewing him was a very aggressive woman who had kind of a hardness about her, and one of the leading questions was, how can you be sure that your faith is, is valid? Here you were political, it looks like you kind of became a Christian to get out of such a harsh sentence and that kind of thing. And so this is what um, Colson said to her. He said, I'll never forget the day one of them, one of these friends of mine who are Christians, called to say, Chuck, because of your family problems, I'm going to ask the president if you can go home while I serve the rest of your prison term. I gasped in disbelief. At the time, Al was the sixth-ranking Republican in the House, one of the most respected public figures in Washington, D.C., he was willing to jeopardize it all out of love for me. It was a powerful witness that Jesus was real, that a believer would lay down his life for another. Colson says, as I retold the story for the cameras, the interviewer broke down and waved her hand saying, stop, stop. Tears mixed with mascara were streaming down her cheeks. She excused herself, repaired her makeup, and injecting confidence back into her voice, she said, okay, let's film that sequence once more. But hearing the story again, she could not hold back her tears. Later, she confessed that Al's willingness to sacrifice had touched her deeply, and she vowed to return to the church that she had left years earlier. Now, on the human level, we hear a story like that, and we are moved by it, that a person would sacrifice so extensively for another person. And I think one reason why that moves us is because it begins to point toward truths about God himself. The great church father, John Chrysostom, writes that through leaving the glory of heaven and becoming human, Jesus, quote, honored the Father all the more, not that you may honor him less, but that you might marvel all the more, the measure of his greatness corresponds with the depth of his humility. Now, last week we looked at the opening of Hebrews and the greatness of Jesus. We saw that Jesus is just, oh, astoundingly great. As the creator of the world, the sustainer of the world, he's the one who's going to wrap it all up at the very end. But here's a striking thought that we're going to focus on this morning, that God is humble. He's willing to go to a lower place to meet a need that we could not meet for ourselves. So the topic this week is Jesus is more humble than you thought. Now, just to briefly review uh, kind of the backdrop of Hebrews for those of you who weren't here last week, this book was probably written as a sermon in about 63 or 64 AD and sent to the city of Rome. The author is a highly educated person who is incarcerated at the moment for the Christian faith, and he's writing to help people who are beginning to struggle with persecution. Persecution is on the rise 
People are, are really starting to struggle with that. Some people are even leaving the church because they, they're thinking, this is just too hard. I, I didn't sign up for this. And so what the author is doing is trying to keep them, helping them to endure in following Jesus in the midst of really difficult circumstances, something we all can identify with, right? We all go through real challenges in life, and it's tough at moments to hang in there. But the way that Hebrews does that in part, kind of the heart of what's going on in this book, is to really try to clarify for us who Jesus is and what he's accomplished on our behalf. And we said last week that according to Hebrews, your perseverance in the Christian life will be in direct proportion to the clarity with which you see who Jesus is and what he has accomplished on our behalf. So today, we're going to look at kind of a second step in the book where he moves from focusing on Jesus as greater to focusing on the incarnation or Jesus becoming human in order to meet us at our point of need. And there are four parts we're going to unpack this morning. Jesus came lower. He was lower to suffer for us, lower to identify with us, and lower to help us. Okay, so that's what we're going to kind of walk our way through this morning. So let's start with Jesus came lower in chapter 2, verses 5 through 9. Look at that passage again with me. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Now, notice how he begins this. He says, for it was not to angels that he subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. Now, what's he talking about there? Where's he been speaking about the world to come? Well, if you look at the very end of chapter 1, we saw the quotation of Psalm 110.1 there at the very end of chapter 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And the early Christians understood this as referring to the exaltation of Jesus to the right hand of the Father and that he is there in that prominent place of authority until the end of the age when he's going to wrap all things up. So, What Hebrews is doing here as he introduces another psalm, Psalm 8, is he points back to Psalm 110.1, and then he introduces Psalm 8. He adds to it this uh, very, very important psalm. And the two psalms are brought together because if you notice, Psalm 110.1 says, "...until I put all things under his feet." And Psalm 8 ends this section that he quotes here with, you have put all things under his feet. 
And at times what rabbis would do is they would pull two passages together that had common language in order to kind of interpret them, listen to them, one passage in light of the other. And that's what's going on here. He's bringing these two psalms together. So there are two reasons why he introduces Psalm 8, and they are this. First of all, Psalm 8 is a celebration of being human. It reflects on the creation of human beings in Genesis. If you go back to the original context in the Psalms, Psalm 8, when it says, what is man that you're mindful of him or the son of man that you give thought to him, it's just a a statement of, of being astounded that the God of the universe who did all this awesome stuff we talked about last week, he thinks about us as humans. He gives really specific attention to us. Last week we said he wants to communicate with us. And Psalm 8 is just kind of astounded by that fact. And what the author is doing here is he's pulling in uh, Psalm 8 because the greatest human being of all time is Jesus. He has actually embodied our humanity in a way that is also astounding. And so the author is pulling this in. He knows the backdrop of this, that it's speaking about all of us as humanity, but he's specifically interested in this as it applies to Jesus himself. Does that make sense? So he's pulling it in as a Christological passage. There are actually two other places, at least in the New Testament, where you have these two Psalms pulled together. In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 25 through 27, In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 through 22, you also have a reference to both of these psalms together as speaking about Christ. And what he's doing at this point in the book is, remember last time we saw chapter 1 really focuses on the exaltation of Jesus. Now he's using Psalm 8 to make a transition to speak about the incarnation because this psalm has both Uh, incarnation and exaltation built into it. Listen to the words again. You have made him a little while lower than the angels. That's incarnation. The idea in Judaism was that we as human beings were kind of in this earth and we're, we're lower than the angels who are around the throne of God and that kind of thing. But when he says in the psalm, you have crowned him with glory and honor, he is speaking about the exaltation of Jesus, right? Because what Jesus did in being raised from the dead and being seated as the king of the universe, he really fulfilled what Adam and Eve were supposed to fulfill as kind of being the kings of the earth under God's direction and rule. So you have this psalm brought in. So one of the things that is going on here is it's, it's introducing this idea of Jesus being lower than the angels or what we call the incarnation. Now, in Christian thought, this this idea of incarnation, of being in the flesh, is one of the most important things that we can think about. And I want us to really kind of process this a bit together this morning. In 1937, Dorothy Sayers, who was uh, an author, wonderful author of fiction, and she was a friend of C.S. Lewis, an amazing uh, Christian intellectual, She said this about the incarnation. She said the incarnation, or Jesus becoming human, is the most dramatic thing about 
Christianity, indeed the most dramatic thing that ever entered into the mind of man. She says, just the, the idea that God would become a human, if you stop and think about it, is just astounding in terms of the drama of what is going on. Uh, Bono, yes, of YouTube, that great theologian, uh, has commented on this. He is a devout believer. And he talks about when he was processing the Christian message, he said this, the idea that God, if there is a force of love and logic in the universe, that it would seek to explain itself is amazing enough that it would seek to explain itself by becoming a child born in poverty and straw, a child. I just thought, wow, just the poetry. I saw the genius of picking a particular point in time and deciding to turn on this. Love needs to find a form. Intimacy needs to be whispered. Love has to become an action or something concrete. It would have to happen. There must be an incarnation. Love must be made flesh. And then speaking further on the absolute astounding nature of the incarnation, John Weberg writes, there is God in the flesh, thriving in a placenta, protected by a water bag, bouncing on a donkey ride to Bethlehem where his folks had to meet the local IRS. No different than any other baby at the time. While God preferred human nature to the angelic, God asked no human favors and got none. When ends are full, they are full. Sleep where one can. God deep in the flesh become God deep in straw. Mary, the mother of the creator, sustained the one who sustained all the living. Now take a moment and just kind of break yourself out of just, we've heard this all of our lives with the Christmas story, right? And just let the astounding nature of this claim wash over you for a minute. So the first reason for him pulling in Psalm 8 is to kind of introduce this idea of Jesus becoming lower for a little while, becoming human. But then secondly, he uses Psalm 8 to address something that might have seemed confusing in pulling these two Psalms side by side. Notice that Psalm 1101 says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet until. Whereas Psalm 8 says, you have put all things under his feet. Well, which is it? Is it until? Or is it that all things already have been put under the feet of Jesus? Well, to dispel the confusion, the author says this, now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. Literally, you could translate that, nothing is independent of him. So he's saying that Psalm 8 means what it says, that Jesus is already the Lord of the universe. He really is. He's already been seated over the universe. So what does Psalm 110 mean? The until I put all things under his feet. It's this, we do not yet see all things subjected to him, but we do see Jesus. 
So the answer to that question, which is it, is it until or is it already, the answer is yes. <laughs> Both. Jesus really is already the Lord of the universe, but we don't yet see all the enemies submitted to him. Now, this makes a lot of sense of our experience in life, doesn't it? I, I have a feeling that when this was first written to these people and they read Psalm 8, all things have been placed under the feet of Jesus. Some of them were going, doesn't feel like it. You know, my friend was just put in jail the other day. Romans are walking over the church. We had a friend back at the university where I taught in Tennessee named Dan. Dan was one of the most delightful human beings you would want to know. He, he taught in the, in the uh, Department of Music. Tremendously gifted, committed Christian, young, beautiful family. And Dan got cancer. And we prayed and prayed and everybody prayed and sent out all kinds of stuff. And Dan died of cancer. The enemies of God are walking around in the earth now. All of them have not been put under the feet. Now, the, the, we're going to talk about the fact that the back of death has been broken by the resurrection. But we live in a world where there are things like coronavirus and mean bosses and exhaustion from small children. I'm not saying small children are the enemies of God, okay? Uh, <laughs> feels like that sometimes. It feels like. Sometimes I'm here going, yeah, it really does. But here's the thing we live in a tension between the now and the not yet. We live in tension. And why is that? And there are people who say, why doesn't God deal with the evil in the world right now? And the answer to that is he has. Look at the cross. And he is. Sometimes God intervenes and heals people and answers prayers and those kind of things. And he will at the end of the age. He is going to shut this thing down and evil is not going to have a place anymore. But we now live in an age of tension because evil people like me can still become children of God. And once God shuts it all down and, and deals with evil decisively, that will no longer be a possibility. So between the cross and the second coming, we, we live with this tension. And that's really what Hebrews is kind of dealing with at this point. And Jesus came and stepped into the tension that we live in, stepped into the suffering that we live in in this world. He came lower to be with us and be one of us. And think of what that cost him. C.S. Lewis said this in drawing an analogy to the incarnation. He said, one may think of a diver first reducing himself to nakedness and then glancing in midair and then gone with the splash, vanished rushing down through green and warm water into black and cold water, down through the increasing pressure into the death-like region of ooze and slime and old decay, and then back up 
again, back to color and light, his lungs almost bursting until suddenly he breaks the surface again, holding in his hand the dripping precious thing he went down to recover. And that dripping precious thing is you and I. And that's what it must have felt like for Jesus, the Lord of the vastness of the universe, to have come and submit himself to the smallness of what it means to be a human being. And then bursting back through resurrection. But do you see how humble Jesus is? That he would come and join us in that. It brings us to our second point that he not only came lower, but he was lower to suffer for us. Look at verse 10 again. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons and daughters, I would add, to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Something was fitting, fitting. This term in the ancient world spoke of things, obviously, that came and, and fit together. If I could draw an analogy, um, back when we lived in Tennessee, I had a shop, and I kind of had my dad's shop gene, which meant that no matter how organized it was, it degenerated into chaos uh, very quickly. And so I would have a box, and I would have nuts and bolts in the box that I'd kind of thrown in there, and I would suddenly need a nut and a bolt. So I would go to the box, and I would kind of, you know, dig through and find until I found a nut and a bolt that fit together. They were fit for one another. Get, get the picture? And what Hebrews is saying here is something was fitting, something fit together. Jesus' suffering to get us back into relationship with the Father was fitting. It, it fit together with God's holiness in Jesus' ability to bring that about and all of it coming together in the love of God. It fit that he accomplished our rescue in this specific way through suffering. John Nevin writes, the word became flesh. In this simple but sublime enunciation, we have the whole gospel comprehended in a word. The incarnation forms thus the great central fact of the world. And at the heart of what God was up to in the universe was us coming to get us through his suffering. Augustine, the wonderful church father, writes, God became a man for this purpose since you, a human being, could not reach God, but you can reach other humans. You might now reach God through a man. And so the man Christ, Jesus, became the mediator of God and human beings. God became a man so that following a man, something you are able to do, you might reach God, which was formerly impossible to you. But what does Hebrews mean here where it says that he was made perfect through suffering? So let me just say a word about the concept of perfection in Hebrews. It doesn't mean that Jesus was imperfect or flawed and then became unflawed. That's not what it's talking about. 
This is perfection in the sense that he stayed all the way on the path that the Father had for him until he was qualified to serve a very specific role in bringing us back to the Father. He was perfectly fitted, in other words, to kind of carry that out for us. And we're going to talk next week about him being appointed as a high priest who brings us to the Father. And what I want you to think about in this is it took vulnerability for him to be able to accomplish that. Just think about the fact that Jesus would not have been able to die if he had not been human. There had to be an element of vulnerability for this to work. Uh, Lucy Shaw, in a poem entitled Descent, writes this, Down he came from up and in from out and here from there, a long leap, an incandescent fall from magnificent to naked, frail, small, through space between stars in our chill night air, shrunk in infant grace to our damp, cramped, earthly place among the shivering sheep. And now, after all, there he lies, fast asleep. Think about the vulnerability of a sleeping baby. John and Sarah's baby, who just kind of made its entrance to the world, think about the vulnerability of that little baby there. And that's part of what it took for Jesus to be able to carry out a particular role in relation to us. In 2016, I was uh, up on a 12 feet in the air, up on a ladder. Um, I was saving a lot of money, changing a light, fixing a light that was an automatic light up over the garage on the outside of our house. And I did that kind of, I crawled all over that house and worked on it. And I was up on top of the ladder when I heard this little sound. And I had just moved the ladder over right next to a portable basketball goal that had these bars sticking out to brace it on the bottom. And when I took a step to get down, because I thought I need to get down and stabilize this thing, and I took a step down, the ladder shot out from under me. And by the time I hit the ground, I was in Superman position, and one of those uh, support bars sticking out on the bottom there caught me in the chest. And it probably saved my life because it kept my head from whipping into the, into the ladder. And uh, when I was being taken into the, uh, into the emergency room, one of my friends was there who's a real joker, and he leaned down and he, he said, hey, gee, did that motion detector light go off when you were on your way down? <laughs> and here I am with internal injuries, right? Not good. Yep. And... Um, we ended up getting with a pulmonologist because it was obvious that I had internal injuries and it turned out that I had what's called a pneumothorax and a pleural effusion, both blowing air and fluid out into my thorax. And when we, when we got with the doctor, the doctor was brilliant as a doctor and terrible at bedside manner. And we, Pat and I met him at the hospital after they had done a CT scan and he said, yeah, your thorax has become infected. And Pat said, you know, while you're figuring out what this infection is, could he die? And he said, sure. <laughs> and I said, 
Um, so how serious is it? He said, well, it's not time to call in the relatives from California. <laughs> I thought, dude, you do not mix well with my wife. Uh, and, um, but I, I, he said, you're having surgery this afternoon. And they put me in and gave me a chest tube. The great thing that happened, though, as a result of that was two years later, my university experienced an F4 tornado that caused $45 million worth of damage in 40 seconds. And there was a young woman there who was a missionary kid who had a wall fall on her and she had crush injuries, including to her lungs. And she had a chest tube. And I was able, I was the main intermediary with people in the hospital, and I was able to sit on the side of her bed and identify with her in what it meant to have a chest tube and to answer her questions because she said, is it going to hurt when, it, when they take it out? You know, things like that. And for a while, she and I had a Facebook group of two called We, we Have Had a Chest Tube or something like that, <laughs> right? But that vulnerability, all of that pain and suffering that I went through was able to be redeemed and turned inside out to help somebody else in their vulnerable condition. And so what he's talking about here is that Jesus has come and suffered for us to meet a need that we could not meet for ourselves. It, it qualified him to meet us in our humanity and the frailty of that and vulnerability of that. Do you see how humble Jesus is? that he would subject himself to that. He came lower. He came to suffer. And then the third thing is he came lower to identify with us, to identify with us. Look at verses 11 through 14 again. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. This is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Now, when he, he uses the terminology of sanctification here, it's not being used in the way that we've used it at times in the Christian faith to speak of, you know, getting more holy as a believer. Uh, the term as used in Hebrews is always talking about being cleansed from your sins in order to come into the presence of God. So it, it means being cleansed from sin. When he says that the, that the ones sanctifying Jesus and the ones being sanctified, the children of God, all share one thing. They come from one thing. And it could be understood as speaking about the fact that we all come from one father, or some commentators think it is speaking about we all have a shared human experience. And I, I think it's the latter, because the whole context is really kind of pointing in that direction. What he does to, to really kind of drive that home is he quotes two obscure Old Testament passages. And we need to understand why he is doing this. In uh, 2.12, he's quoting a part 
of Psalm 22. Now, this is a messianic psalm, a psalm that the early Christians really saw as speaking about Jesus. In fact, if you look at Psalm 22, 1, you have, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A little bit later in that psalm, you have uh, other material like the taunting that we're told of at the cross eventually, the fact that his bones would not be broken, people would play a game for his clothing, all of those are in Psalm 22. So this is a messianic psalm, but at verse 22, the little bit that we have here in Hebrews, the psalm shifts to the righteous sufferer's praise of God for his help and his identification with other people who were kind of in this community trusting God. So he's speaking here in this bit about being with the people of God in this posture of trust. So for Hebrews, it's, it's the idea that Jesus came to be a human being. He's going through all of the, the trauma that we face as human beings, but he's doing it with a posture of trust from the standpoint of being one of us. And then the other passage quoted here is Isaiah chapter 8, verses 17 and 18. In the broader context of that passage in Isaiah, which is also a messianic passage, we read about the stone that causes people to stumble, for instance. A little bit later in the next chapter, we read, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders. So that's a, a rich, broad, messianic passage as well. But he says in the part of the quotation, I will put my trust in him, and it declares Jesus' trust in the Father, and again, him doing it, I and the children that God has given me, as his solidarity with us. So these two bits that are quoted here are all about this dynamic of solidarity. And then he says that he shared with us flesh and blood. He became embodied like one of us. Martin Luther, uh, writing about the incarnation, said, He condescends to assume my flesh and blood, my body and soul. He does not become an angel or another magnificent creature. He becomes man. And this is a token of God's mercy to wretched human beings. The human heart cannot grasp or understand, let alone express it. So think of the beauty that he meets us in our human condition. We're used to thinking about Jesus as glorified because we, we rightly focus on the resurrection of Jesus. We worship him as God. But think about the fact that Jesus sweat. It almost seems sacrilegious to say Jesus went to the toilet his whole life. Jesus got physically tired. He smacked his thumb with a rock, I bet. And it hurt as he was building things with his father. He enjoyed good food and he tasted really bad food sometimes. But he came to do that to identify with us in the fullness of our human experience. And that's why a little bit later in Hebrews 4, 15, it says that he was tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. 
He, had, he, he never was tempted to throw a computer out the window. But I guarantee you he was tempted to be profoundly frustrated with the tools he was working with. Father Damien was a priest who became famous for his willingness to serve lepers. He lived in a village uh, in Hawaii that had been set aside as a leper colony. And he lived with them for 16 years. He learned to speak their language. He bandaged their wounds. He embraced the bodies no one else would touch. He organized schools and bands and choirs. He built homes. And with his own hands, he built 2,000 coffins so that those who died could be buried with dignity. Slowly, it was said that Kalawao became a place to live rather than a place just to die. But Father Damien was not careful about keeping his distance. He did nothing to separate himself from the people. He shared his pipe with them. He shared food with them. He did not always wash his hands. Does all this sound familiar? He got close, and for this, the people loved him. And then one day, he stood up and he began his sermon by saying, we lepers. Now he wasn't just helping them. Now he was one of them. John Ortberg writes, from this day forward, he wasn't just on their island. He was in their skin. First, he had chosen to live as they lived. Now he would die as they died. They were in it together. And in a sense, when Jesus came and took on human flesh and all of our human experience, he stepped into planet Earth and said, we humans. Do you see how humble Jesus is? He came lower, lower to suffer for us, lower to identify with us, and fourth and finally, he came lower to help us to accomplish things for us that we could not accomplish for ourselves. Look at verses 14b through 18 again. Since therefore the children <clears throat> share in flesh and blood, he himself will likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now, as I said, next week we're going to be getting into the role of Jesus as our high priest. So what I want to focus on as we kind of wrap up today is this idea that Jesus destroyed the one having the power of death and delivered from the fear of death. In the ancient world, there are lots of quotes about how terrified people were of death. I think it was Epictetus who said that 
You know, where can I go? Where can I flee from death? There is no country I can flee to to escape its power. Uh, Woody Allen in the modern age said, it's not that I'm afraid to die. I just don't want to be there when it happens. And in his book, The Art of Dying, Robert Neal notes a number of reasons why we fear death. Why do we fear death so much? He mentioned that we have a loss of control in death. We're, again, at a place of vulnerability in life. There's a sense of incompleteness and failure. As we come to the end of our lives, we think about the things that we didn't get done. We fear separation from loved ones, the fact that this is it, we're going to be cut off in terms of relationships. And Elizabeth Kubler-Ross in her classic study on the topic says that we also fear the unfamiliarity of death, the fact that this is something we've not walked through before, it's alien to us. In fact, uh, one person has called death an obscene mystery because it's something that none of us have been through. But the gospel, if you think about it, answers each one of these fears. When we're cut off from loved ones, it's not forever, right? If they know the Lord. Um, we know that we're limited as human beings and that we fail. <laughs> so we're realist about that kind of thing. And then think about this idea of the mystery of it. And for us, it's kind of a mixed bag. The known is mixed with the, in with the unknown because we know someone who's already gone through it, Jesus. Uh, it's very interesting that in the ancient world, in Jewish literature, you have no descriptions of what the resurrection body will be like. But we have that in Christianity. Go read 1 Corinthians 15. Because the early believers experienced someone who had been raised from the dead. Jesus has gone before us and experienced it and broken its back. Speaking of just someone going before us, Elizabeth Elliot um, tells the story about how she was in the Amazon jungle and was going through the jungle and came suddenly to a place where there was this deep ravine and there was a log that was stretched over the ravine as the bridge to walk across. And her guide jumped up on the log and just walked across. <laughs> and he looked back and she was standing there on the edge of the ravine like this. And he came back to her and he reached out and he took her hand and said, Senorita, just look at me and just walk across. And she draws the analogy there that that's what death is going to be like for us as believers, that Christ has been before us. He's going to take our hand in death and say, I've done this already. And he is going to bring us into his presence at that point. I think one of the greatest Christian truths is that we as followers of Jesus have hope in the face of death that is not just pie in the sky kind of hope, it's a realistic hope because of what Christ has accomplished in real space and time in going through death and walking through the experience of resurrection. And that gives us profound, powerful hope, which is 
historically grounded in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you're a fan of the Chronicles of Narnia, I love how they end. C.S. Lewis's wonderful series of, of children's books, and I'm going to kind of end on this note today and this, this note of hope. If you know those stories, you know that uh, Aslan is the great lion, the king of Narnia who represents Christ in the stories. And the children have been brought over into England time and time again to have all of their adventures, and then they have been sent back. And you get to the very end of the series, and suddenly all the children are gathered together. Aslan has actually shut the door on Narnia, because wrapping all things up. And they're all, all the children are standing around. And one of the children says, please, Aslan, you're not going to send us back again, are you? And Aslan says this, he said, haven't you guessed it? There was a real railway accident that they had been involved in. Your father and mother and all of you are, as you used to call it, in the Shadowlands, dead. The term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream is ended. This is morning. And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion, but the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories, and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after, after, but for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all the adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. That's our hope as followers of Jesus, because Jesus came after us. And he did that by becoming human, being one of us. It's a great story. Would you stand together, please?